Our title for today's sermon is Royal and Risky Reunions. Royal and Risky Reunions. Let me read 13 through 17. Mordecai told the me- this messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jewish people because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to a royal position for such a time as this. So Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go and you assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way, and after that I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. It's against the law for her to go to the king to ask him to save the Jewish people. Yet she's going to do so anyway. Now, I'm always intrigued when we have conversations with believing people as to how they understand what they're supposed to do. When it comes to doing things we are supposed to do, it is puzzling to me. And I think one of the oddest things that we can reply as Christians when people would say, when the Bible says this is what you're supposed to do is, I will pray about it. Think about that for just a moment. All of the things that God directs us to do, commands us to do, to which we, in effect, if not verbally reply, I'll pray about that. I will pray about that. So the Bible says that we're to go make disciples. I will pray about that. Well, that was not an option that God gave you. I I, I will pray about that. I I will pray about loving my neighbor. I was actually at a church at one point. We found out that some people had left our church. One of the reasons that the person told me, well, they didn't tell you because no one ever tells you why they leave. They tell everyone else. They told us the reason that they were leaving the church was because we talked about loving God and loving other people too much. Okay, so if that's the reason you're going to leave our church, don't let the door hit you as you walk out. So just pray about it. So we look and we see in this passage the idea uh, very often that, that Esther is going to fast and pray, asking God, from what we understand, though he is not mentioned, when you consider fasting, we are considering an interaction with God. Fasting without prayer, no matter what diet you're doing right now, is not fasting. It is not eating, which is a terrible way to live your life. So you read through this passage, and you see that Esther is going to interact with someone on behalf, with God, on behalf of the Jewish people for this mission, this purpose. And she's going to do so for three days. Really, when we think about prayer, when we think about what it means for us to pray, when we say that we're going to pray about something that we don't want to do, that we've been commanded to do, what we're telling whomever we're talking to is, I will figure out if this is right for me. The thing is, as Christians, as believers in Jesus, we don't get to decide what's right for us. As a matter of fact, if we're deciding what's right for us, it's typically going to be wrong. God has declared for us and has decided for us how we're to live. We should not pray about, what, about doing what we're supposed to do. We should pray about how we are going to do it. We pray logistically far too often and strategically far too, few, too little. So when we look at, just think about for a moment, we're in the season next week, we'll start our, our new year, our children's ministry. They're actually doing the kickoff right now. 
And over the last few weeks, we've had conversations with various people, can you work in the children's department? And the answer to that, a lot of times, is no. Uh, I cannot work in the children's department. If you can, so rather than uh, when we as a church consider what it means for us to come alongside of our children, because it's one thing for us to sit in a room like this and talk to a couple on stage about how we're going to walk alongside of them in faith. It's another thing altogether to, to really lean in when opportunities arise and serve those families. It's way easy for me to say what Jared puts on the screen, and it's really difficult for me to get into a room on, my, on the floor with a four-year-old. So when we consider what it means for us to serve with our children's ministry, what it means for us to walk alongside of families as we do so, if you cannot serve once a month or you cannot serve once a quarter, how about replying with, you know what, that's not working. Right now I can't make that happen, but how can I serve? Because far too often the reply to can you serve in the children's department is just a no. We may get the occasional I pray about that. But that praying is really, what can I do so that I don't have to answer this question? That's a soapbox, I'll hop off of it. The reason that we struggle with all of this is because we are very much like Esther. Esther had forgotten who she was and whose she was. And the same can be said for believers today. Many of us have forgotten who we are and whose we are. The story of Esther has been doctored up. And as a matter of fact, as we look through the course of church history, the course of the history of the Bible, the way that we've taken this story is we have interpreted it as if it is a Disney fairy tale. We have a Jewish princess. We have merged it with the James Bond story. Some have even gone as far to say that Esther was a Jewish spy sent in to the palace of Xerxes. She did nothing inappropriate other than try to save her people. And that is not the story that the Bible tells. We have a woman who has entered into the, the palace, and she is definitely in a terrible situation at the very beginning. Esther was a girl in chapter 1 who was raised by her cousin Mordecai. She's raised by her cousin Mordecai. There's going to be a beauty pageant. She's made uh, one of the women who will represent her area. She is chosen by King Xerxes. That's what takes place in this story. They have a relationship outside of marriage. She is a concubine, rather, and she is going to be made the queen of Persia. We have a story of a people who have been in Persian captivity for years. We have a people who have, as they have lived among the people of Persia, have taken on Persian characteristics. They've taken Persian names. They live their lives as if they're Persians. You would not be able to tell they were God's people if you looked at them from a distance. You could not identify them in a lineup. They'd forgotten who they were. But there comes a point in Esther chapter 4 where she realizes that she would rather die functioning as one of God's people than to live as the queen of Persia. Her identity finally mattered. Can we say the same thing about ourselves? Have we arrived at the point as followers of Jesus where our identity as people of Jesus matters? 
Have we arrived at the place at this strategic moment in the history of humanity where we see that the world around us does not agree with what we believe or why we believe it? They do not agree with how we practice what we believe. If we practice it, has our identity finally began to matter to us? Will that take place in our hearts and in our lives? Would we say the same of our identity, that it finally matters to us? Does it matter to us in our workplaces? Does it matter to us in our neighborhoods? Does it matter to us at the school that we happen to attend? If we are homeschool parents, does it matter to us as we interact with our children throughout our community from day to day? Does our identity as followers of Jesus matter? Or does your identity as a person who just comes to a place on Sunday mornings matter? Because that's not Christianity. That's just us sitting together under the same roof. And as I've said multiple times, if the idea of following after Jesus is a hobby that you happen to have, it's a pretty dumb hobby. It doesn't make sense when it comes to hobbies. What do you do? I play golf. What about you? We fish. I own 17 Columbia fishing shirts. I fish. Well, what about you? I go to church. That's a bad hobby compared to the others. But are we going to be people who pursue Jesus? That's the question that we would ask. We get to chapter 5 of Esther on the third day. Third day is a huge phrase in the Bible. You've more than likely heard it at some point in your development. The third day is when stuff happens in the Bible. It's a big Bible deal. Abraham, if you are familiar with the story from Genesis chapter 22, he takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him for three days. He's anguishing over the death of his son when he gets to the to the place where he's going to offer him as a sacrifice. God offers redemption. God offers a someone in the son's place. Jonah was spat out of the well on the third day. Jesus was, as we all know, dead for three days. The third day is when redemption comes. For Esther, these three days were a painstaking uh, set of hours. As we look at her life, we would know she's fasting, she's praying, she is mimicking what she sees in Mordecai. We would even consider that she is considered sackcloth and ashes herself. She's asked people to come alongside of her to do the same thing. And as she does this, she makes a decision and she moves in a certain direction. She moves from compromise to conviction. And in chapter 5, we see her make this dangerous decision where she risks her life for the sake of rescuing the Jewish people. Uh, On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing. It it literally reads in in the original language, she put on her Esther royalty. And she stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the courtroom facing its entrance. So the royal throne is there. It's made of gold. It's not what we imagine when we consider thrones. It's just a chair. It's a big chair. Because Xerxes believed himself to be the biggest person ever. He communicates that he's over seven feet tall when people would write down the histories of Xerxes. And on this big chair that's made of gold, there's a footstool that's there where he rests his feet because that's what you do with a footstool. You know how Ottomans work. And as he sits on the throne, he looks out, but the room would not be flipped the way that our room is. It would be as if Xerxes' chair was where the cross is, over here to my right-hand side, and towards the back would be where the courtroom was. And 
Xerxes would see his wife coming into the courtroom. The thing is, if you are unfamiliar, the idea of her entering in the courtroom is not what you think. Because if we just hear that phrase, of course the wife would enter the presence of the husband. That's how life works. She enters into the presence of the husband to have conversations with him. She enters into the presence of the husband to talk about things that are going on with her children. She enters into the presence of the husband to wake him up from the, from the recliner. That's what happens when she comes in. But that's not what happens here. She's not been with her husband for 30 days. She's not seen her husband for 30 days. And she is the second wife of Xerxes. The first wife was banished because she had fallen out of favor with the king. And for her to go into the throne room is for her to risk her life. To walk into the presence of this man through this long co corridor with pillars on each side. He could see into the courtyard. And for her to walk into that area is her inviting the possibility of death. The guards are standing there because they know her. This is the wife of the king. And as they see, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to go there? And when, he gets to her, when she gets to him. Verse 2. As soon as the queen, as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther. As we look into the history of Persia, we realize that the extension of this scepter is the way that he would let her know that she was not going to die for doing something she was told not to do. But that's only one side of the way the scepter worked. In order for Esther to be pardoned in full, she has to do what we see here. The king extended the scepter, and she approached and she touched the tip of it. Pardon is granted, and pardon is gained. She is there, however. I, I love that because what we find as we look into this text is that as she enters the presence of the king, the king offers her forgiveness, offers her pardon, and she responds by receiving said pardon. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that she happens to be there. So we've got this story, and we see that we have a, a book of the Bible that never mentions God, but God is telling us about himself through this. Do you see that? Do you see how God tells us his story through this king? He is whispering of his greatness through a moron who has a throne because he's, he's from the right family. And that is a little, for me, it's helpful because it offers me some hope. If I've got a God who would say to me through this story, pardon is offered and pardon is received. And for each and every one of us, we see God offering forgiveness of our sin. Pardon for entering his presence when we do not belong there. The Bible in the Old Testament tells us that regularly. That we do not deserve to be in the presence of a greater, more important king. Yet God extends pardon to us. We are to receive the pardon. Have we trusted in what God has done for us in the person of Jesus? 
Have we trusted the offering that he has made for us? Him extending pardon and us receiving it. Verse 3, what is this, Queen Esther? Whatever you want, even half the kingdom, that will be given to you. That's a pretty popular phrase. We see it through the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Whenever you have people in kingly states, when someone comes into their presence and they don't think they should belong there, uh, they will offer half of a kingdom. Whenever they're trying to show someone how much they care about them, here's half of the kingdom. He says this to Esther. Herod says that to his niece in one of the most awkward stories in the Bible. I'll give you half of the kingdom. But they're not trying to give anyone half of the kingdom. He's trying to crack a code. Because for her to be here, this is not just her showing up to say, hey, what's up? This is her showing up in the presence of the king, and she has something on her mind. Uh, Men, we know when there's something on the mind of our spouse. Husbands and wives on the mind of our children. We know when they're standing around us just for the sake of standing around us because that's what children do. They just swarm like mosquitoes in southeast Texas sometimes. And we know when they are there and they have something on their mind. She has something on her mind and it is of utmost importance. And the way that she sets herself up for the furtherance of this conversation is, verse 4, If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for them. A couple of things about this banquet. They use the word feast here. This is not really a, a meal. The central focus of this gathering is the wine. This is a celebration. We also know from history that if she's coming and she's having dinner with him, it's a big deal. It's very unlike our families where we sit around tables at Chick-fil-A together and eat meals with one another. They did not eat meals with one another. He ate by himself. She ate by herself. Everyone was separate. And for her to invite a third party to this is awkward. But that's the offering that's made. Verse 5 through 8. Get Haman so we can do as Esther's requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, Whatever you ask, I'm going to give it to you. Whatever you want, even half the kingdom, that's going to be yours. Esther, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I would like to know what you need. Verse 7. This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet that I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. Now I mentioned Haman, and you may not know Haman because no one names their child Haman because he's one of the Bible's big villains. In the Old Testament, he's one of the major villains. Haman is a terrible human being who functions... For the sake of people thinking he's awesome. Just like the Lego movie taught us. In verse 9, we actually can see uh, that that Haman left full of joy. Haman wants to kill all of the Jewish people. He wants to wipe them out, eradicate, annihilate, destroy them as a whole. But here, this man who who likes to be honored has just been honored by the queen of the world. And he has just been invited to a dinner with the king of the world. 
And as he has sat down with both of them, he realizes in his heart of hearts that he is as big of a deal as he could ever be. What a majorly important person I am. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai, Mordecai the uncle of the cousin of Esther, sitting at the king's gate, Mordecai did not stand up for him. Mordecai did not stand up at all, nor did he tremble in fear at his presence. Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. But Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many, to his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him to a rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited me, no one but me, to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. And I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. I don't know who the most important person you've ever eaten a meal with happens to be, but the king of the world is a pretty big deal. And he is saying, I've just sat down with the king. Not only have I sat down with the king, I sat down with the queen. They never, ever eat together, but they're eating together when I'm there. Waiter showed up, dropped our food off. And I'm going back tomorrow. This is fantastic. Yet there's one thing. One thing that bothers me. Every person I see, they bow down before me. The king brings me over for meals. The queen does too. She asked for me by name. But there's this one guy who I cannot stand. And that one guy is stealing from me all of my joy. It may not be a person, but how often do we find ourselves in light of all of the goodness in the world? Because God gives general good graces all of the good relationships that we have. All the people that care for us. All of the general blessings of God extended to each and every one of us. When we consider our wives, we consider our children, we consider the blessings that come with a family. When we consider all of the other, the job that we have that we like. The job that we have that we don't like. The fact that we as a people take for granted the very fact that we're going to eat. We don't wonder if we will eat like people in much of the Bible. We just wonder when and what. God has blessed us enormously. However, more often than not, in my own heart, my human, sinful, depraved heart, rather than looking at all of the good around me, I find myself fixating on the thing that I hate and I want nothing to do with. Look, we talk about the story of Esther and how fantastic of a story it is. That we have Esther echoing the story of God and how God redeems his people. But we can't see the fullness of the story of Esther until we realize that all of us have the heart of Haman. Letting things steal from us joy. Robbing us of being able to function in our world in in good and healthy ways. I've got everything, but this guy won't bow. It reminds me of what we see in in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve had everything except that one thing they wanted. I want, but that's not enough. I want more. It's our human condition displaying itself in full that we think that we deserve better than what we actually have.
And that pride is what will eventually condemn Haman. That pride corrupts, it corrodes, and eventually condemns. And for those of us who look at our lives and we cannot see anything else but the bad, that will corrupt us, it will corrode us, and it will eventually condemn us. It is an unhealthy way to live. It's an unhealthy way for Haman to function. It's an unhealthy way for us to function. I want more, he says. He allows someone not bowing to him to steal joy from him. What are you allowing to steal joy from you? What's the one thing that you want that you just can't seem to have? Haman's an odd duck in the Bible because when we look at him, we see two things. He deals simultaneously with superiority and inferiority. Most of us deal with one or the other. But both of those are displays of pride, full-on displays of pride. In superiority, Haman says to those around him, I am better than these people. His inferiority says, I wish they would recognize me. Which side of that are you on? His superiority says, everybody needs me. His inferiority says that nobody needs me. Both of these are at work in all of us regularly. What are we doing to come, in, to come alongside of that and to see how God would deal with that in our human hearts? Yet, verse 10, Haman controls himself and he goes home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth, his many sons. He told them how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over other officials and the royal staff. I'm the most important person. I'm the vice king. What's more, Queen Esther invited me, but no one but, no one but me to join the king at the banquet. Still, none of this satisfies me. Since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all of the time. That thing that just won't go away. His wife Zeresh and his friends told him, have them build a gallows. These people get serious quick, by the way. Have them build a gallows 75 feet high. If we're measuring that in cubits as if it were Goliath, that's 50 cubits high. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. (laughs) Go with me. This guy won't bow to me. Hang him. That's what he wants. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. This is all advice from his wife. You want him dead, boo? Then go ahead and just do it. Kill him. This lady sounds lovely. Remember, though, friends who've been with me for three weeks, who listen on on the interweb, This whole party starts because men did not want their wives telling them what to do. And she just said, kill him. So so we have Haman ready to kill Mordecai. Not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. And we're going to kill him way up high. Chapter 6, something starts happening. That night, sleep escaped the king. Anybody ever been there? Sleep escaping you? I went and did a test this week with the fine people at Gulf Coast Sleep Center. They let me know that sleep was escaping me as well as oxygen. Uh, and I've got this thing called sleep apnea. That's not cool. Uh, I have sleep apnea because I don't say no to cheeseburgers. But you, you have sleep escaping the king. And he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. These are the chronicles of the king. I want you to go get that book, that history book, because if anything's going to put you to sleep, it will be the history book. They didn't have Ambien. 
They didn't have Netflix and Snore. All they had was this old book to read. So go get it. And they found written report of Mordecai, how he had informed, had informed on Big Tana and Teresh, Big T and Sneaky T, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Xerxes. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? That's five years ago. What's been done when Mordecai saved me from my sneaky eunuchs What's been done to say to Mordecai, you're a big deal? And the king found out that no one had honored the man who had cared for him. No one had honored the man who saved his life. That's not how that's supposed to work. In the history of the Persian people, the idea of honor is a pretty big deal. You care for, you show, you display to them when they have done right by you, you show them that they have done correctly by you. But it has been overlooked. But it's not overlooked. It's just in God's providence here. It's God's story of overlooking Mordecai at a certain time. Because for such a time as right now, Mordecai needs to be honored. We need a situation to take place in the life of Mordecai. Mordecai is going to be cared. What can we do to let him know how much he means to me? The king can't sleep, but he's not the only person who can't sleep. Haman can't sleep either. These people need to rest better. Rim cycle, full, eight hours. The king's personal attendants replied to him, nothing has been done. Verse 4, the king asked, who's in the court? Middle of the night, because the king's asleep. He's got on his snuggie. Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai. Look, guys, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to see this is funny. We have one man who wants to hang another man that the king is, is thinking about honoring. The king's... Okay, not a comedy group. Cool. The king's... <laughs> the king's attendants answered him. Hang there. Standing in the court. Now remember, Haman's his right-hand man. If anyone's going to help out the king, it will be Haman. King, Morde King Xerxes says, go get Haman. I want to talk to him. He'll know what to do. If you, don't, if you remember, friends, who've been with me for a couple of weeks, if anything we've learned about Xerxes, he can't make his mind up. Go get Haman. He'll help me. The king attend attendants answered him. Haman is there in the court. Have him enter, the king said. Haman entered, and the king asked him. Notice how he asked him. What should be done... For the man the king wants to honor. Now, if you've got your own Bible, I want to let you to read that next phrase, verse, uh, verse 6, by yourself. Before I read it out loud for those who didn't bring their Bibles. King Xerxes wants to honor someone... And when he asked Haman about honoring someone, Haman's first thought is, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? Our focus on ourselves is wicked. And it bites us. Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor... Have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn. 
and bring a horse that the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Notice what we're doing with the crowns. We're putting crowns on horses now. Like a Disney movie. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Have them parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. All the while, Haman thinking he's talking about himself. So the king told him, Hurry up. Do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse from Mordecai, for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Because you don't think this is funny, I wish this was an episode of Cheers where I could pipe in laughter. That's amazing. Do not leave out anything that you have suggested. So notice what Haman has to do. He took the garment and the horse, the king's garment, the king's horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The whole while, he's gritting his teeth. He's angry that this would ever be expected of him. Furious that someone would ask him to care for Mordecai in this way. Disgraced by the very act that he thought would show that he was the most important person in the eyes of Xerxes. But I want us to look at it another way. Because as Haman is going around town declaring that this is the one the king delights to honor, doing what everything that he had said with a horse wearing a crown... He's telling us a better story. You see, God does not have to tell us his story through the most noble characters. God tells us his story through whomever he wants to tell us his story through. In the same way that we can see how God is a better king than Xerxes. We can see that God loves us and cares for us and honors us in better ways than Haman hap happens to. Haman hates lifting up his enemy. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Haman wants to be dressed in the king's robes. We, as believers in Jesus, are dressed in the righteousness of Christ through his shed blood, broken body. Haman wants to be escorted around town by the noblest servant. In the person of Jesus, God has honored us and he has offered his most noble servant, his very son, to be the one who escorts us into, the, into a right relationship with him. Haman wants someone screaming as they go through town, this is the one the king delights to honor. And Jesus does something better because over you, Jesus, who has humbled himself to serve you, who has loved himself to offer relationship with you, who has cared for you when you did not deserve it, Jesus does not not say this is the one the king wants to honor. Jesus says something better because over you, Jesus says over and over this one, this one is mine. This one is mine. This one is mine. This one is mine. Haman did all of the things that he was commanded to do by Xerxes and honored the one that he hated the most. 
Jesus has poured himself out, humbled himself to serve you and to serve me. Echoing what we see in chapter 5, he has extended a scepter to us, offering pardon that we can receive. While we see Xerxes as a king who is sleepless, we see Jesus as one who never slumbers, never sleeps, nor does he need to. We see that God has chosen to honor us by his very son so that we could have a relationship with him and so that we could be extensions of his kingdom and as people who have an identity that is in something other than ourselves. Remembering who we are, that we are people that the king has delighted to honor. The king has served us and dressed us in righteousness. He has paraded us around and said, this one's mine, this one's mine. Are we clinging to the identity that God has given us in Jesus? Are we hoping and, and praying that God would show himself to us through his, through, show himself to us through his son and show himself to those around us through us? Are we people who are like Esther, seeking and finding the opportunities that are in front of us to say that our God is a good God who is worthy of, of all praise and all glory and of all honor, risking our lives because if we look through this text and we consider what it means for Esther to go to the king, we are looking at the story of Jesus who would not just risk his life but would give his life so that we can have a right relationship with God. The story of Jesus is a story of sacrifice. And the story of the people of Jesus should be a story of sacrifice as well. Risking much because our reward is greater.